All right, well, hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning, New Life Church. Our slideshow uh, will be rolling again at the end of service. Uh, we're trying to get as much playtime on that as we possibly can to reminisce and showcase some memories and, uh, and, and celebrate the things that, that, are, uh, that are part of our church right now moving forward. But listen, we are uh, glad you're a part today. How about, uh, man, there's nothing like being in the presence of the Lord. That's not something that we take for granted. It's not something that we, um, you know, fabricated is, is who he is. He, it says he inhabits the praises of his people. And Jesus said, when I am exalted, I draw all men and all people to myself. And that's part of our, our aim every week when we come together as a corporate body to exalt Jesus and uh, to make him great. In our, through our praise and to honor him in our worship. And when we do that, as Lindsay said, it reorients our thoughts and, and he, Jesus has a way of resetting himself into our hearts and settling down on some things that we have perhaps exalted and then he becomes king over and reigns over and that is the best place uh, where our souls can be is letting Jesus have his way in our life. And, you know, we're, we're in a series right now. It's called Vision 2020. Let hope arise. You know, last week was pretty special. Uh, how many of you were a part of last week's uh, uh, celebration and service last week? Don't get too excited on me now, okay? Uh, but last week was special. We were able to enjoy a lot of rich encouragement and fellowship in our breakfast time. Uh, shake some hands, hug some necks, uh, see some familiar faces uh, over, over that we haven't perhaps seen in quite a while. And that was, that was uh, encouraging. And, and uplifting. We were able to reminisce about the roots of our history of our church uh, with Pastor Val's message last week. Uh, and again, church, I just want to say thank you uh, for your hospitality, your generosity, uh, your sincerity in hosting last week, hosting a breakfast, make, going out of your way and doing some extra things uh, to make it special. The welcoming of many people here last week, uh, really creating an atmosphere uh, is conducive for the presence of God uh, to touch and change our lives. And I believe it was, it was definitely one for the books last week, our homecoming service. And, um, you know, really, that's really what, when you get down to it, that's what this series is about as we've been, and we're right in the middle of this, uh, about to cross over the, the midway point of this series as we wrap up at the end of September. As we share, going to be sharing about our 20-year vision as a church, where God is, where, where we believe the Lord's showing on his uh, screen for our future and what he has for us. Uh, you know, trying to really re remind ourselves that our hope and our help comes from God. It does not come in things. Amen? It's not rooted in, in material things. It's not rooted in, 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 in financial things. Our hope and our help truly comes from the Lord. And then we have that happening inside of us and we're reminding ourselves of that. It's about letting that hope rise in our hearts and be fresh and be real in our souls. As and you know, it, it's, it's important, I believe, in any time we, we take some special time as we are honoring the legacy that has helped to shape us and we're rejoicing in the future that lies ahead of us. And, and we're trying to do that and, and, and create this opportunity over the length of this series to, for that to happen. Let me draw your attention uh, to the New Testament, to 1 Timothy 1. I'm going to share for a few minutes 
And here in a moment, uh, I've asked Josh Christmas. He's actually going to come and, and share. He's, he's got a story. His story really falls in, in, the, in the history line of our church and um, about what the Lord has done in, in his life. And he's going to help me finish today's message here in just a few minutes. Uh, but before he comes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap up the second part of what I started a couple of weeks ago, 20 things I've learned in ministry. And I'm just going to share really briefly about these. I, I, I'm going to resist the urge to, uh, to expound on all of these uh, as I could. I really could. I was go- going back over them this week and rehearsing some of these things in my mind. And, and it's just, I'm like, I could really easily chase that and go. I, but so if you want me to preach, come back next week, Okay. Um, but anyway, um, there are, these are some important things that, that I do want to share that uh, I think are helpful in our life overall. But let's look at our main text here, 1 Timothy 1, verse 12. Paul, writing to his protege Timothy, his younger son in the faith, he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength to do his work. He, God, considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve him. And even though I used to blaspheme the name of Christ, he says, I did that in my insolence. I persecuted his people, but God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. But oh, how generous and how gracious our Lord was. I think we could all say amen to that. He filled me with faith and filled me with love that come from Christ Jesus. As we were admonished earlier by James, we need God's love to fill us. This is a trustworthy saying, verse 15, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all, but God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me. You know, God wants to use your life, but it requires his mercy to come in. We sang a song about that last week. It was powerful. Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others, because this is what it's about as well, then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. So the salvation of Christ in our life as an individual is one thing, but it's a totally another thing when Jesus uses that salvation in us to help reach other people. And we have to always remember that this thing is not always about us. There's always someone else that God wants to use in you and through your life. Amen? Verse 17, all honor and glory to God forever and ever because that is ultimately who gets the credit for all the things in our life. That he is the eternal king, the unseen one who never dies. He alone is God. And he says, amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the time as we gather here in your name and in your presence. That it's our hope and prayer that today is not one thing that we just do to check you off the list. But it's something where you come in and inhabit our hearts and you sit on the throne of our lives. We give you this time and attention to your word. May we learn from it. May we grow from it. And may it work its way into our life in a much deeper way, we pray in Jesus' name. You can say amen and amen. So briefly, I'm going to share. I've grouped these last ten things into two segments. I grouped it this way, 11 through 14, talking about 20 things learned from ministry and how, it, how it, it, it lives in our life and how it can help us. Because if you don't know, this is our, my 20th year in full-time 
ministry, okay, in case you didn't catch that over the last few weeks, not taunt, celebrating that in a way of, hey, Ray, look at me, yay, yay, but in the sense of what God has, has helped me with. Verse, uh, excuse me, 11 through 14, I say it this way. Keep, I have to learn to keep responding faithfully to the one who has chosen me. Keep responding faithfully to the one who has chosen me. Look at this right here on the screen, 2 Timothy 4, verse 6. Paul says, as for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is near, and I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race, and I have remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but it's for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing, is the way Paul says it, keep responding faithfully to the one who has chosen me. You know, from the time Paul wrote the first letter to Timothy to the second letter he wrote to Timothy, where's a span of about two to three years. How many of you know a lot can happen in two to three years? Come on, talk back to me, church. Two to three years, a lot can happen, and certainly a lot has happened here in the story with Paul and Timothy. And Paul is using his life as an encouragement to Timothy, who is a pastor of a very large church in Ephesus, to encourage him that, hey, no matter what, be faithful to the, to the God who has called you. Be faithful to the one who has called you, no matter what. And, and I kind of say it this way and sum it up with 12, 13, and 14. 12 is this. And understanding to keep responding faithfully to the one who's called me is this. Understand that God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. That any one of our lives, we can all get caught up in, I'm not worthy. I don't think God could do this with me. I don't even see how God can turn things around in my life. Even if I really, really, really want him to, I don't even know that I have the ability to even comprehend that. And the reality is, God is the perfect one. And he is perfect in how he works things out in our life. We may not always understand how it all comes to pass, but if we trust him and put our whole faith in him, he has a way of setting us up and preparing us for the very next thing that he has in our life. Even when we don't understand maybe tragedy behind us, there will be triumph in front of us. It always happens. That's the way God moves our life forward. Understanding God doesn't... call the qualified he qualifies the call because listen if i bought into the lie that man i'm not qualified guess what i wouldn't be doing what i'm doing i wouldn't be talking to you i wouldn't be standing before you i'd be sitting in the furthest row from the front as possible because there are many days where i doubt i'm qualified but that's a good and 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 i think a healthy place to be many days because i can't get full of myself i just need to get full of jesus more and more amen number 13 understanding this Understanding the tremendous value of trials and difficulties. Anybody ever been through anything? Uh, just a few of you? you? Yeah, I believe we all been through something, and we've been through some things that are hard, that I haven't been through some of the things you've been through, and you have not been through some of the things that I've been through, but we have been through some trials and some difficulties, and we need to understand God has value in those, in those seasons of pain because he will bring us to our purpose with a greater preparation as we give ourselves to the process and what he wants to prune out of our life and what he wants to produce out of our life amen we need to understand that if we're going to continue to be faithful to god who's called us and who wants to use our life to help somebody else then we've got to understand the value of trials and difficulties number 14 
in responding faithfully to the God who's called me is this understanding that I should never make a change during the storm. Been lots of storms in 20 years of ministry. But the thing that the, one of the things the Lord has, has taught me is they don't, don't, don't be knee-jerk in, in things. Don't be too hasty. Weather it out, wait it out, let the clouds roll on by, let the sun come back out, and you can see a little, you can see things clearer than perhaps what you did before. Is that if we're going to respond faithfully to the God who's called us and wants to use our life, then folks, when it gets difficult, when it gets dark, that's not the time to bolt and run. That is not the time to make a life-changing decision in the sense of, I'm never going to do this anymore. No, wait it out. Weather it out. Have a little more patience. I would encourage you in that. Wait it out. Have a little more patience. Let the, let the clouds clear. Let the sun come out. Let Jesus become more visible in your life again, and you'll begin to see things clearer, and you'll begin to know which way to go. Amen? Then 15 through 20. told you I was going to be brief. 15 through 20, I summed it up with, with this heading. Ministry is not for the faint of heart. Here's, what, here's what, 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 Tim, what Paul tells Timothy later in that chapter, verse 9, chapter 4, 2 Timothy. He says, Timothy, please come as soon as you can. Paul's in prison, about to face his execution of death, and he's like, Timothy, please come as soon you can. He said, Demas has deserted me because he loves the things of this life. He says, Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus went to Dalmatia. Luke is the only one here with me. Luke's all right, but I'm going to need you, Timothy. Oh, and bring Mark with you. I know we, you got into, we got into it years ago and we split ways, but hey, I need him now. I need him now. I'm realizing I need him now. He said, I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. I would too with a name like Tychicus. He says, verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. Anybody ever done you harm? What's Paul say? He says, hey, but the Lord, just, the Lord will judge him. Verse 16, first time I was brought before the judge, no one came with me. Everyone abandoned me, but may it not be counted against them. And he goes on to say, but the Lord is the one who has stood by me and stood with me and has given me strength. You see... Paul expressing ministry is not for the faint of heart. As my old pastor once said, you need to have some thick skin. You don't need to be thick-headed, but you need to have some thick skin. And I'll say it this way to sum up this part of ministry is not for the faint of heart. Number 16, pastors are people and people aren't perfect. If you expect me to be perfect, please change your mind. Because I, I will surely, surely disappoint you. I wasn't going to say a bad word, I promise. <laughs> Pastors are people, and people aren't perfect. Number 17, people. This is one of the things under understanding the ministry is not for the faint of heart. People need to be shown love and care a whole lot. When you go through trials and difficulties and you go through storms with people, you start to see... A lot of things that people deal with. And you realize, man, I can't give you what you need. I've got to have the love of Christ consume my life and fill me in order for me to be able to help you. And friends, that is what this world is looking for. It's looking for a people who just love Jesus 
and who want him to fill their life so that they can show this world what love and care is really all about. Number 18, if you're going to, if you ever go, I mean, going to have any longevity in faith and you're not going to be overcome with um, a hard heart or a bitter, the root of bitterness, the cup of bitterness, then number 18, live willing to forgive others and for me and myself. Live willing to forgive others and yourself. Um, that's something that Jesus commands us to do. Forgive. 70 times 7, forgive. And we have to live willing to forgive. And we also have to live willing to forgive ourselves because sometimes our worst enemy is ourself. Sometimes we're the hardest on ourself. And number 19, ministry is not for the faint of heart. Pastors need friends. <laughs> Thank God I got some friends. Thank God I got some friends. Pastors need friends. I read this about Warren Buffett. I read this, that he makes 90% of his money off of 10 investments. I think the same is true of friendship. You don't have to have a whole lot of friends, but you need to have a few that matter. You don't have to have 1,000 friends, but you do need to have a few that really matter in your life. And Paul was expressing this to Timothy. Timothy, please get here. I need you. I'm trying to hold on. I'm trying to hang in there. Everybody has left. Everybody went this way and that way. Some even abandoned me and some even caused me great harm. I need you right now, Timothy. I need you. To sum it up, I'd say it this way. God wants to grow me more than he wants to grow the church I lead. With lots and lots and lots and lots of people. Not opposed to that but I can't get it backwards. It's too many pastors these days focus so much more on the church growing and themselves shrinking. And I don't want to be that kind of person. I don't want to do that to you. I don't want to be so focused on growing the church and getting it so big while myself, my soul is shrinking inside because I didn't do what was right internally. Amen? Here's I'll say it this way. I believe God wants me to have exactly what he wants me to have for this season. May we all be able to live that way. And I'm not saying I'm perfect in that. I'm just saying that's, where I, that's the balance of life where I want to live, that I want to believe that the Lord, whatever I have right now, is what he wants me to have in this season. I don't go chasing crazy stuff. That I'm content where he has me. I look forward to what lies ahead, but I'm content where he has me. I need his help to steward this well. It's about staying where God puts us, and trusting him where he leads us. Not getting antsy, not getting irritated, not getting frustrated, not getting in a haste, in a hurry. Because we get in a hurry sometimes, we'll do some things that we will regret later. If we truly want to know God and his will for our life, here's the thing, we need to do life with God's people. We need to resist the urge, the temptation, to be isolated, alone, doing it all by ourselves, We need to welcome God's people into our life. That if you want to walk in your purpose and be fulfilled in what God has called you to do, here's the thing. We have to enter into the messiness of other people's lives, which requires us to love deeply. That 
is inconvenient. Can I just say that's inconvenient? Right? Can anybody admit that is just really inconvenient? Don't leave your pastor hanging by himself up here. Here's the thing. The days are long, but the years are short. And the 20th thing I could say, ministry is not for the faint of heart. It's something I'm really, 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 really trying to do again. Because it's been a long time since I've done it every day. And that is to laugh a lot. To laugh a lot. Again and again and again and again. So I picked out a little video to show us, a Christian comic. It's about three minutes. His name's John Christ. If you don't like John Christ, then you don't like me. If you don't like me, you're just in the wrong church. <laughs> but John Christ is going to make us laugh for a moment. And then right after that, I, my dear friend, brother, cousin, and Jesus... All things. He's going to come. Josh Christmas is going to come. And he's going to take the remainder of the time and he's going to share a powerful story with you. Amen. Let's take a look. Today we're talking about pre meal prayer. Very confusing subject. A lot of people don't know when to pray, what to pray for, how to pray, who prays. Hey, do you want me to? Should I pray? You want to? Should we pray? I don't know if. All very confusing. We're going to cover it all today. Let's get started. Chips and salsa. Sometimes they bring it to the table before you're even seated. There's no need to pray for that. Lots of people wonder about appetizers. Do you pray for them? Do you not pray for them? No prayer is necessary for an appetizer if you have entrees coming out later. Salad. That is the most confusing thing on the prayer continuum. If it's a side salad or an appetizer salad, no need for prayer there. Now, if it's a main course salad or you're bringing it out with the rest of everyone else's meal, that then is going to require some kind of prayer. But I put that kind of in a separate category. For the most part, when you're thinking about salads, just remember this. If it requires dressing, it doesn't require a blessing. Do I pray for coffee? No. Are you a psychopath? No one wants to be next to the person at Starbucks that's praying over a latte, you weirdo. Soup. Do you pray for soup? Do not pray for soup. It's only bowl-related soups. Anything smaller than that is always off the hook. I like to say if it comes in a cup, no need to lift up. Everyone knows if you order a hamburger, that's going to require prayer. But if you order sliders, that does not require prayer. It's a little glitch in the system a lot of people are not aware of. Potato skins, no prayer. Baked potato, prayer. Ask any Bible-believing Christian, they're going to have a different policy on fries. Some say never eat the fries. Some say eat as many as you want. Here's the policy on fries. Up to three fries is acceptable to eat prior to the prayer. That brings us to dessert. Always a very confusing situation. A lot of times people go out to a show, go to a movie. Hey, should we grab some dessert afterward? Yeah, let me get the creme brulee. I love cheesecake. Ugh. You don't need to pray for that because you've already prayed for your meal earlier in the night. Do you hold hands before you pray? That depends on your situation. If it's a personal family gathering, some close-knit Bible study of some sort, sure, a hold hand wouldn't be uncomfortable. Now, if you're on a Tinder date, that might throw off the mood a little bit. Most of the confusion surrounding pre-meal prayer comes from when to actually pray. Let me just say, on behalf of waiters all over the world, please pray when your waiter is not there. There's nothing worse than a waiter coming out with two full arms of fajitas and you're over there mid-prayer of Jabez. Like, what are you doing? Last but certainly not least, who at the table 
volunteers to lead the prayer. Lots of people say the man should lead the prayer. Why is that? I'm not sure. It's 2018. Maybe we should get that rule adjusted at some point in the near future. A lot of people operate under the most spiritual person at the table. They're going to be the one that should pray because that prayer is going to be the most powerful and effective. So if you got obviously a pastor, a missionary, even a Christian blogger of some sort, shoot, even a volunteer youth pastor, that prayer is going to be a little less effective, but it's still going to qualify. If you're just an average person sitting at the table with obviously more spiritual people around you, you're kind of off the hook because I feel like God would be like, hey, how come y'all didn't bless this meal? You'd be like, I don't know. Ask the pastor. He works for you. Today, we're talking about pre-meal prayer. Very confusing subject. A lot of people don't know when to pray, what I never thought I'd have to follow John Christ, but here, here it is. Here I am. Can you guys hear me okay? All right. Um, hardest place to speak. Always. I should have just got these before. I knew I need them, so. All right. 40 years this church has been around, and it has had a massive impact on my life. Um, I came here 11 years ago in June in the front door, and we are on North Parkway. Completely broken. Totally empty. I had no friends. I had no identity. I had um, no worth, no value whatsoever in, in my life at all. I had a probably about three weeks before, come out of an 18-year struggle with homosexuality. Now, this topic is very touchy. It's even touchy in a place where it's easy to talk about, and it's really touchy um, in, in secular settings. But uh, I told the Lord a long time ago, I said, if you ever deliver me and you ever set me free, I will always preach and tell the truth of what you can do, and he's always had my back. Um, I walked into the church. I had been stripped of everything I had, and nobody showed me love. Like those two people right there. So squeaky. <laughs> they took me into their lives. They didn't know me. We had not met before. Uh, they took me into their home. They uh, mentored me and, and trained me and showed me what family was and friends were. Um, and, and I will never, ever forget that. I have my wife and my sons because of the relationship that, that, I, that I started with them. So I'm just going to kind of go over my, my story. Um, people have a lot of questions about, about this, and uh, so I want to try to answer some of these and some of the things that I say. But I grew up at, in, a, in a Pentecostal home, classic Pentecostal church, as a child. My parents divorced when I was eight years old, and my dad moved to Nashville, and I stayed with my mom and my stepdad. Um, I will say this, from my personal experience, from the thousands of people that I encountered who have same-sex attraction, um, male and female, I can't really name one person who did not have a parental deficit in some area of their life, whether they had, um, were abused physically or sexually, or they came from a divorced home, or they had an overbearing parent, one who didn't love them the way that they needed to be loved. Uh, so it is not a 
a sin and a thing that we need to put in its own category and isolate it and make it something that's untouchable. If you just talk to people who have dealt with this and ask them what they want the church to do and what they, how they think the church should approach them, everybody would say, I know I would have said, just get to know me. Find out who I am as a person. Don't, tr- don't try to change me, but just get to know me and, and my struggles and my pain. And once you understand where somebody has come from, it's easy to see the path that they have taken that has caused them to struggle with what they have struggled with. Uh, so my dad was here in Nashville. I was in Washington. And I immediately cut off my stepfather because I thought that having a relationship with him would be not loving my dad. So at eight years old, I, my dad was gone. I would not let my stepfather have a relationship with me. And then the desire, the natural desire that I had for a man to love me, I, I cut it off and it went away. So as I came towards puberty, all of my feelings turned um, inappropriate. And I was desiring things from men that were not godly to desire because what I really wanted... <sighs> was just a hug and to be loved. But I would never let myself do that as a kid because I always thought that if I showed affection in loving men, then people would think I was gay. And it is so crazy how the enemy will take natural desires and things that we have that God has put in us, and he will pervert them to keep us from growing into the people that Christ needs us to be. And I struggled with that for so many years. Um, all through my school years, I had a way better time uh, relating to girls than guys. I was not athletic. I can barely catch somebody's drift, let alone a ball. So that was really difficult for me. Um, but I remember watching guys um, play football and hang out with each other and do stuff. And I wanted that so bad, but uh, I would never let myself go there. Um, at the same time, I was always dealing with my perceptions and feelings of being rejected. I had an intense longing for male acceptance that I would not deal with, and it turned me into, I was very insecure. It gave me depression. It gave me anxiety. Um, The enemy always knows how to attack us in our weakest and most vulnerable places. He knows me and every other man's God-given desire for male acceptance. He turned all of those godly desires into perverted, lustful cravings. But Jesus also knew exactly where I was. The enemy could only give me a counterfeit of what the Lord was wanting for me. These desires and longings were only temporarily satisfying my deeper need for healthy male relationships. I, I want, it's so frustrating to me dealing with the church on this issue because it is not its own separate thing that is hard to deal with and understand. Sin is sin is sin. Everything is just like everything else. But because the church basically has two stances on this, we are either A, you're super talented, so we're going to overlook this because we don't know how to deal with it, and we're going to allow you to operate in this position and just pretend like this doesn't exist. Or B, you filthy, horrible, vile person, get out of the church. We don't want nothing to do with you. Let's pick at you. Both of those are completely wrong. But there is a place of love and kindness in Christ to where when we realize that we don't have to have all the answers, all we have to do is meet people in their brokenness and their pain and love them. You know, I was talking last night to somebody and I said, here's here's what we need to do. We need to approach people with a place of just godly love. See, uh, um, victory is a byproduct of submission to Christ. So when I came to God, my goal was not to be straight. 
my goal was to fall in love with Jesus. So if you come to God because your goal is to not be an alcoholic or not be depressed or not struggle with anxiety or not be a drug addict, it's going to fail. Because your victory is a byproduct of how much you want to pursue a relationship with God. So if you have somebody in your life who has this struggle, whether they accept it or they don't love it, what you need to get in their head, and people ask me all the time, even if I do get delivered, am am I going to have a family like you? Am I going to be quote-unquote straight? What if this doesn't go away? I tell people every day when I speak this to them, let Jesus be your goal, not freedom. Freedom comes with submitting yourself to Christ. And we have to realize that when we are dealing with people who are broken and are hurting and are lost, that we can't put our time frame on them. Because I'll tell you this, God is never early, but he's never late. His timing is always perfect, and it is very rarely what our timing should be. I remember about a year after God set me free, I posted on MySpace uh, my goal for myself for the next two years. And I was like, in two years, I want to be in full-time ministry. Well, that did not happen. I'm uh, 11 and a half years walking in freedom with Jesus, but his ways are not my ways. He has a completely different path and plan for me. So I tell people that in the grand scheme of things of life, dealing with something for a few years once you come to Christ and taking a little longer to get over it is nothing in this view of cosmic eternity. So if you look at the fact that God, uh, uh, a day to God is as a thousand years to us, that means that every single day God has 8,974,000 hours to deal with your junk. Don't you think he can do that for you in almost 9 million hours? We put such unrealistic expectations on ourselves and who we are supposed to be or who we think we're supposed to be, and we don't give God space to room. God room to move, space to room. That too, figure that one out. But if we will trust him with everything for our family and for ourselves and be like, God, move in your timing, move in these people's lives at your pace and not my pace, it will make it a much less painful process of overcoming. So uh, when I was 21 years old, I moved out on my own, um, and it was the beginning of the end. Uh, For the next eight years, I just completely turned myself over to this lifestyle. I'm just going to read this paragraph because it's a little more descriptive than everything I can remember, but it says... At age 21, I moved out on my own, and there was the be- that was the beginning of the end. I felt more separated from God every day. My relationship with Christ was being compromised by my need for male affection. Logically, I understood that I was heading down a dark path, but the hope of finding someone to love me overpowered my mind and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It was a risk I was willing to take. I remember the first time I stepped into a gay club in 1996. I never felt such acceptance from the friends that I met. They understood me for the first time in my life. I didn't have to hide my desire or pretend to be something I wasn't. I was the popular one. Men wanted to be around me. It was intoxicating. It made me feel like I was on top of the world, yet in spite of my new world, deep inside, I hated who I was and what I was doing. I built a wall around myself to keep everyone that cared about me away. I developed quite an addiction to pills, anything to numb me. If I was numb, I couldn't feel the misery that was swallowing my life. I knew I was spiraling completely out of control, but Satan was swallowing me. My sin had become much bigger than I was because when, you're, when you have no love, even bad love is better than no love at all. And I was desperate for bad love because I needed somebody to pay attention to me. I continued in this lifestyle for the next eight years. 
Once a Christian friend asked me why I was living this way, and I said, I hate who I am. I want to be free. I'm doing the best with the hand that I've been dealt. It's too strong, and I'm too weak to overcome it. Um, God saw everything that I was doing and knew all of my pain and my brokenness. And I know that what he was doing is everything that I was getting a counterfeit from, he was tallying up on a sheet. He's got that the fake. I'm going to give him the real. That he's taken that's counterfeit, I'm going to give him the real. So don't think that just because of the decisions that you've made, that you've messed up, that you've lost time, God can restore in an instant the things that the enemy has taken away from you. And so when you come to him and you submit your life to him, he's going to start to restore all the junk that hell has taken from you. And he's going to start to heap blessings on you if you will do it in his timing and in his way and not try to force the hand of God to fit into the calling and the purpose that you think you have on your life. It is what God has for you and what God wants for you. And the sooner that we let ourselves go, it says in he is made strong in our weakness. So in my falling down, in my suffering, in my messing up, God has given strength because he can't come and save me if I don't mess up and allow him to pick me up and rescue me. My boys don't see my strength when they're um, doing great. They see my strength when they're broken and they're hurting and they need their daddy to pick them up and love them and show them that everything is going to be okay. And that's what God does for us. He doesn't want us to be self-sufficient. He wants us to be completely dependent on him in every way, every shape, every form. So if you are struggling or tormented or you know somebody who is, specifically today with with this thing, because it affects every single person in this room in one way or another, Give it to Jesus completely. Say, here I am, lost and broken. My child is lost. I am lost. My spouse is suffering. Help us through this. And if you do not try to figure out how God's going to do it, he will do it perfectly in his timing and his way. In May of 2006, um, let's skip that. So on June 3rd of 2006, I went home and I was sitting. I had just been at a Nashville Pride Festival downtown. I was sitting down and planning where I was going to go that night, and for some reason I decided to start listening to worship music, which I hadn't been to church in years. Obviously, it was just God. So I was listening to hymns on my computer, and um, all of a sudden, the power of God fell so real and so tangibly on me in that moment. And he said to me so clearly, he said, Son, because of all the prayers that have gone up for you, over the past 14 years, and how miserable I know that you truly are in this lifestyle, I'm going to deliver you right now and set you free. And he goes, I'm going to do it in a way that everybody who looks at you in the future will say, surely that had to be God. And there is nothing short of the miraculous, powerful hand of God that is the reason that I was set free that night. In one hour, he took away every inappropriate sexual desire that I had had since I was eight years old. He, I did not change my job. I did not change my apartment. I went to the men that I had been friends with and the guy that I was seeing. The Lord gave me the words to say because I had built up these walls. I built up this huge life around me. And I didn't know how to, once I gave myself to God, I didn't know how to break everything else down and get rid of it. And in one hour, God gave me the words to say. I went to all these people. I said, I can't be friends with you anymore. I have to live a better life, a different way. And every single one of those people let me go. Not one person to this day, and I'm in the same city, has tried to pursue me or get me back into that lifestyle. Because when you really believe that God's going to do it, 
He will do it in such a way because he wants all the glory. And he got all the glory for that day in June of 06. And I will always be completely grateful for what he did for me. Um, thank you. So, a few weeks later, I was at work and the phone rang and it was... Pastor Jeremy, he didn't know me from Adam. And uh, this is, and he said, hey, um, I know that what you have been through. And I, I kind of knew what a church and, and what they wanted to do and, uh, with me. And uh, we want you to come. If you would like to come, we would like to minister to you and walk you through this and help you overcome. And um, I said, okay. So every day for the next year, I drove on Wednesdays from Nashville to Jackson, and I met with some very godly men and dealt with all my junk, <laughs> all the junk that I had. Um, God delivered me from the sexual brokenness, but he didn't deliver me from the broken little boy that I had to grow into. I think that's one of the ways that the church people suffer so much is we want God to remove our pain from us. But he doesn't want to take it away. He wants us to walk through it. Because if you walk through it, you can teach other people how to walk through it. If he takes it away, you don't have a way to help other people who are broken. Walking through this year was one of the most trying and painful and fulfilling things I've ever done in my life. Um, it was, I was forced to deal with lots of difficult issues that I either hadn't dealt with or wouldn't let God deal with. Uh, God, knew, God used the new brothers in Christ to minister to me. Friendship and love. I remember one particular meeting. This is the hardest part. Always. When I can go somewhere and not cry at all and just laugh. I get to this right here. I said, um, I remember sitting in a meeting and, and the hardest thing was I had, I had no value. Nobody ever poured love into me. I had no worth as a man. And uh, I said that to Jeremy, and he said, man, just come come to my house and stay with me for a week. You can just hang out, go where I go, do what we do. And that was the first time I'd ever felt like I've had worth and value in the eyes of another man. All men before just wanted to either exploit me or sleep with me. And I felt, found somebody who loved me for me and saw my worth and my value and wanted to help that grow in me. And uh, thank you. Whew. All right. So now some good stuff. So on Sunday, February 4th, uh, 2007, I was visiting the church. It was Super Bowl Sunday. And I, uh, this is just where I just, God gets all the glory because he's just so awesome. So I walked in the pastor's office and uh, I saw his niece sitting on the couch. And immediately, the Lord said to me, he goes, there's your wife right there, the woman that I have prepared for you. Well, I didn't even know who she was. And uh, it was Carrie, my obviously wife <laughs> now. And um, I started pursuing her, and she'd say stalking, but I'm going to say pursuing. <laughs> um, so that was in February of 2007. And in August of 2007, I moved here. I moved in with Pastor Jeremy and Haley for three months, and then we bought a hundred-year-old money pit on Hollywood that stretched us out for four years working on. 
And then uh, we got married in March of 2018. 2008, yes. 2018, no, we did not get married in March because we have a seven-year-old, so. No, 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 March of 2008. Three years later, our oldest son, Charlie, was born. And then um, five years after that, our youngest son, Cash, was born. You can look, but don't touch because he's not going to allow you to touch him. Um, But it blows my mind that all the things I never thought that I would have, God gave me just because I was willing to trust him in the journey and allow people to be the hands and feet of Jesus for me in my life. I find that the hardest thing for people to do to overcome is to recognize that they have value and they have worth. See, our value and our worth come from the fact that we are human and we are weak and we fall. The enemy uses that same value and worth to make us feel devalued. He takes the things that give God the glory and make us feel ashamed and condemned for even struggling at all. I want to tell you today, never allow hell to make you feel like you don't have worth and you don't have value. Your worth and your value do not come from what you have not done. They come from who you are. We are sons and daughters of the Most High God. He has called us into his, to be his own just because he loves us and he sees our struggle and he sees our pain. And I'm going to see these $2 bills right here. They're both worth a dollar, right? Why are they worth a dollar? Because of what they are, okay? This one has a stain on it. Is it still worth a dollar? Okay. Now it's crushed. It doesn't look as pretty as this one does. It's been through some stuff. How much is it worth? Is it worth the same as this one? It is broken. Even if it is completely straightened out and repaired, it's still going to have scars. Because of what it's been through, it will always bear what it's done. How much is it worth? Its value comes in what it is, not what it's been through. Jesus sees us the way we see money. He doesn't see us as valueless because of what we've been through. He sees our value and because of who he's made us. I was at a service last month, and I'm very hard on myself, always have been. And if I, if I don't do things the way I should, I mess up. I always, like, scold myself, and um, I, I, very several areas I just don't feel like I'm up, up to par, like I'm as good as other people are. And this pastor came up to me, and he looked at me, and he goes, I feel like I have a word of the Lord for you. And he says, God tells you to stop hating my son. And when he said that, I just I broke because I realized that I had been hating myself because I don't feel like I'm good enough. And I would beat myself up. And he said to me, God, over the next week, began to say, I need you to fight for yourself because you will never fight for something you hate. And you have to be on your side. So if you are here today and you are broken and hurting and you really don't like yourself very much and you don't feel like you measure up to somebody else, God needs you to get on your side and fight for yourself. So when I pray, I've started saying, and it's not comfortable, God, I just bless Josh. Give him the desires of his heart. He's a good man. He has worth. He has value. You have called him to be everything that you want him to be. And as you've heard from my story, 
I have a lot of horrible things that I have done that I have put myself through that I have had to overcome, that I've had to realize that it was the enemy, that it's the old man, that it's not the new man. But I've decided, I've stood up and I've said, even in the past few weeks, no more will I allow the enemy to make me hate myself or let that old man rise up. No more will I allow the things of my past and what I have done and been through to affect the purpose and the calling that God has for me. I'm going to stand firm, I'm going to plant my feet, and I'm going to allow God God to accomplish his purpose in my life, even if it goes slower than I want, if it goes in a different direction. I'd rather struggle and be in pain for five years than have the next 50 years be a mediocre life that is full of regret because I did not allow God to accomplish the work and the purpose that he wanted to do in me. So I want to tell you right now, if you're hurting and you're lost, there is hope in Jesus. If you're not where you want to be, none of us are, there is hope in Jesus. Don't compare yourself to other people. Don't allow the enemy to make you think that you're not as good as somebody else because you're all, you, you just want to be as good as God wants you to be. He doesn't want us to compare ourselves with other people because we all have different callings and different things to bring. But I hope I've shed some light on struggle and pain and not beating yourself up and realizing that just because you are not where you want to be, that does not mean you are not where God wants to be. I want to leave this with you. Straight people don't go to heaven. Redeemed people go to heaven. And gay people don't go to hell. People who aren't reconciled to Christ go to hell. God would rather have you messy than not have you at all. So don't leave your baggage at the door. You pick up your baggage in your rolling cart and you bring it to Christ and you lay it at his feet and you allow him to deal with it. Because in our weakness, he is made strong and he is made perfect. Amen? Thank mm-hmm. you.